Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent Roland Garros Review Podcast. This is Matt Zemek. Uh, Sake Bali is recording and producing the podcast, but, you know, he's been through the ringer in terms of health, uh, trying to make a full recovery, keep the prayers and well wishes coming to Sakib as he tries to get on his feet and dealing uh, with his recovery. So we wish him the best. And we welcome back as our guest, uh, Tennis with an Accent consultant and analyst, Andrew Burton, on Burton ad on Twitter, Burton AD on Twitter, uh, to help us review and process the past fortnight in Paris. So, Andrew, as we welcome you back and as we thank you, as always, for joining us and providing your insight and analysis, number 22, number 14 at uh, Roland Garros for Rafa. The, the numbers just, uh, you know, they're mind boggling. And yet, I mean, certainly once he beat Djokovic in the quarterfinals, this was certainly the expectation. Uh, so your reaction to Rafa's latest conquest of the major tournament mountain? Well, I think we have to start with what a cliffhanger it was today, huh? Well, this was the uh, varsity versus junior varsity. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, well done to Casper Ruud for having a good tournament and, and coming through the lower half of the draw. I mean, we could spin it out with, you know, fantasy tennis about, you know, the, you know, how it went to the final set match tie break and at 15 all Rafa produced this amazing shot, but it, that didn't happen, did it? I mean, basically this, I, I, kind of felt going into the match that this was going to be a, a, a terrible matchup for Kasper Ruud in all different dimensions. And, and we can get to talk about the, the actual shape of the final later on, but this was as near a procession, I thought, as you know, the, the last one that, that felt like this, to me at least, uh, was the 2013 final against David Ferrer, where, where Rafa beat Ferrer probably to win something like his seventh or eighth uh, Roland Garros. I, you know, like many of us, I, I lost count some time ago. Um, one thing that has come out since the, the final, which is very interesting, there had been rumours that Nadal wasn't going to uh, compete at Wimbledon. He says he's going to try to do so, but he's, he's needing to consult with doctors about... Um, the, the medium-term prognosis for the chronic foot injury that he's been carrying. And he's, he's apparently attempting a, a, a new form of um, radio-focused treatment on, on the nerve. And he apparently had injections before each match and said that in the match against Verev, he just couldn't feel his foot at all. So it just makes the achievement in 2022 even more astonishing nadal went through four top 10 players to win the tournament uh, as you said matt in your introduction he made his way through the quarter of death um which you know he ended up playing novak djokovic and in in prior ATP Roland Garros tournament since something like 2005, you know, one of the only questions about, you know, is Nadal possibly going to win this year? Is his opponent Novak Djokovic in the last 10 years or so? That's Novak's won twice. 
the only player to defeat uh, Nadal twice in five set matches uh, over the course of his career. So the statistics are, uh, are, are gaudy. And really, once, once Nadal was past the quarter, you kind of felt, okay, it's now Nadal against the field. So, you know, the, the, the final against Rude, obviously very low on drama. And, you know, we did, it, we did a live show on the Djokovic match. So this leaves us with the need to unpack the complicated Zverev semifinal Lots of plot twists there. And, of course, the, re- the resolution to that match was that there wasn't any resolution, that we didn't get to see uh, either man problem-solve his way through a second-set tiebreaker, which, you know, if Zverev wins that tiebreaker, we're looking at a, at a five-hour, four-set match, potentially, and an immense physical grind for Nadal, win or lose. So how do you wrestle with just the uh, the uncertain nature of that. And, you know, just uh, to for our listeners here on the Tennis with an Accent podcast, before Tennis with an Accent existed, before Sakib launched the site four or five years ago, I believe, I mean, like 2017, 2018, years before that, I mean, Andrew and I certainly had a dialogue on tennis Twitter uh, you know, with uh, the, the people that we knew and talked with from Peter Bodo's tennis world, uh, formed a, you know, a community and a conversational rapport. And so back in 2014, just to kind of set up this conversation, we had the situation of Stan Wawrinka winning the 2014 Australian Open final against a physically compromised Rafa. And the discussion came up, you know, is there an asterisk attached to this first major for Stan. And of course, this was before he then went on to win Roland Garros in 2015 and the U.S. Open in 2016. So the fact that he had never, you know, crossed the threshold at that point certainly created an understandable debate about just how much the the, the back injury for Rafa should influence how we uh, view that particular major title. And so that was a moment when Andrew very clearly said, no asterisks that, you know, you don't place this notion of taint or cheapness on a major title just because of an injury. So just with that background in mind, now we fast forward eight years to a situation which was not the same. And of course, uh, the, the biggest difference of all was that it wasn't Rafa dealing with the injury. It was the, his opponent dealing with an injury. But with all that prelude, Having been acknowledged, Andrew, what's your, just your your mental gymnastics, or like how you how you balance, juggle the various tension points that were obviously involved in that match and its denouement? Yeah, and the, and the, no, the the whole no asterisk question, you know, goes back I think several years before then when we were running something called the picks game. I don't know if you remember that from you know, 2007, 2008 or so. Uh, and, you know, I, w- I was saying I was going to put an asterisk against a match because a player got injured uh, and finished the match and someone else said, no, you don't do that. And, and as I spent some time thinking about it, I thought 
if a player is competing, you know, if a player says, I've got a, you know, maybe 2% chance to win this, um, but stranger things have happened and you're, you're, you're still, now you may be hampered, you may not be 100%, uh, you, you may be seriously hampered, but if, if, you're, if you're trying to win the match, then you, you don't put an asterisk against it. And going back to the uh, Vavrinka final, the first of Stan's wins, early in the second set, Nadal took a medical timeout because of back spasms, was clearly hampered in the second set and was hampered in the rest of the match. But Nadal won the third set, lost the fourth set, so Stan won the match. Nadal actually split games with Stan, nine games apiece, in the third and fourth set. So... Nadal was competing. Who knows? The, the, the back might have freed up if he'd managed to, to sneak out the, the fourth set. So that, that's really where the no asterisk thing came from. When you look at the denouement of the Zverev match, you know, basically it was over in a tenth of a second. Uh, Sasha was moving to his right. He wasn't stunningly wrong-footed as far as I could tell. The the Roland Garris court surface wasn't horribly chewed up with potholes in it, but he, he moved to his right and got his footwork wrong, rolled his ankle and he, he, he was done. You knew immediately that he was done. So that semi-final match ended immediately there. There's, there's all kinds of questions about what might have been for Zverev should have, could have, would have taken the first set. He had four set points, uh, 6-2 up in a tie break and, and did the, you know, kind of normal Zverev thing of, you know, being up in a major match and sort of wobbling psychologically. The second set in the, the Zverev-Nadal match was, was just a total disaster area. Nadal was broken four times in succession, uh, but Zverev couldn't serve it out. Uh, there, there were weird dynamics because of the humidity and uh, it being played under a roof because of, of rain in Paris. So it had already been a very strange match. The, the tennis channel commentators after the match were saying, you know, the two players were, were playing their best and I had no idea where that was coming from. It, it was very strange. We'll never know what would happen in that match. We do know that it had already taken three hours. And as you said, had either player made it through and, and completed a full match, had Nadal won in three sets or Zverev won in four sets or either player won in four or five sets, you know, it would have taken a lot out of them before the final. It didn't. But are you going to asterisk a tournament for Nadal who you know, came through the Djokovic quarter, um, played Zverev, who was likely the next most um, likely winner of the tournament, and Zverev had beaten Alcaraz in the quarterfinal. Are you going to ask risk a tournament? Uh, you might if you are an absolute diehard fan of another player. Let's say that, um, you know, no names, no pack drills. Suppose that you're a 
undying Alcaraz fan and Alcaraz wins 21 majors. And then you say, okay, but I'm asterisking that uh, 2022 Roland Garros final with Nadal won because of the Zverev injury. Uh, But apart from that, no, Uh, there's no asterisk on the tournament. We wish Zverev well, apparently Uh, he's, he's done some ligament damage. They're still going to be checking out uh, likely have to wait for the swelling to go down, likely have to do a, a medical assessment. I wouldn't be at all surprised if some form of surgery is involved and he's, he's off the court for a while. So, so we hope he comes back. So, you know, in terms of, let's look at Zverev for a little bit. And we'll, we'll obviously circle back to Nadal and, and uh, assess his historical achievements. But because we're on that Zverev match, let's round out the picture a little bit with Zverev. How, how significant is it that, you know, he, he missed his chances to fit to, you know, win each of the first two sets. I mean, he could have been up two sets in half the time, you know, 90 minutes instead of uh, three hours. And they were at three hours and 13 minutes when they were about to start the second set breaker. uh, And that's when Zverev's injury occurred. The fact that Zverev, you know, had his chances, but couldn't do it. Like how, does the injury overwhelm all of that or does it still kind of register as a significant part of his reality at major tournaments? You know, that, that in big moments, you know, he still falters. He still isn't able to close the sale against the elites. Like how prominent is that talking point coming out of Paris in light of the injury? Uh, How, how, how do you weigh those things in your mind? Um. You know, I, 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 I really don't know, Matt. I, you know, I have to say that the, the injury, you know, possibly it's going to take him another six months or so. I, you know, just, I, I really don't know how long it takes before he, he comes back on court. But he's, he, he's that, that really overshadows everything. I mean, Zverev's career up until... Roland Garros 2022 everybody knew had been marked by having all of the physical tools to to win major tournaments he had begun I think in 2021 and 2022 to put some of the pieces together in terms of not going out in early rounds uh, which had been a you know, a failing, you don't, there's the old saying, you don't win majors in, in the first week, but you can lose them. And, and Zverev had a lot of practice at losing earlier in his career, even while being up in the ATP top 10, he was, he was losing uh, first, second, third round in a major. So he was putting that together. He was getting quarterfinal or better. He played, I thought, really well against Carlos Alcaraz in the quarterfinal kind of had a sense during the match that the match was actually on Alcaraz's racket, that if he really began to play at his top level, he was going to win it. But Zverev prevailed in a four-set tiebreaker, um, hitting a, a glorious down-the-line backhand on match point to, to take the match. Um, and I thought he came into uh, the semifinal with a puncher's chance. Uh, Saki and I sort of exchanged um, 
Twitter DMs before the match, and my estimate was was maybe 20%, that one in five times if they played it, Zverev would come through that match. Um, and then I later found somebody doing some very complicated probabilistic mathematics to come up with Zverev having a 22% chance. So yeah, I, I felt reasonably well calibrated. But it, it, it really is the... You really have the sense watching the the first half of the semi-final that you know lasted multiple hours that Zverev hadn't gotten to the stage where he was mentally locked in and executing his game plan. He still had the tools to beat Nadal, who was vulnerable and and was playing nowhere near his best. But when when the time came to actually close out Nadal famously. Zverev had match point against Nadal at Indian Wells in the first match that they ever played competitively and flagged a, a backhand, a makeable backhand volley and lost. And Zverev has, has never taken the step. He was up two sets and a break, I think, on team in their US Open final and then you know went into his shell and lost after a, a final set tiebreak. So that that thing of overcoming his own mental fragility, we'll see in the next half of, of Zverev's career, you know, hopefully he comes back and is able to um, you know, physically take his place as he as he was before. We'll see if if mentally he comes back a different player. Uh, one other thing about the Rafa Zverev match, and this is about tactics in tennis. Um, I'm referring to the uh, 6-4 point uh, in the tiebreaker where Nadal um, was able to correctly guess which way Zverev was hitting. Uh, you know, he goes to the uh, to the ad side and he hits the the cross court winner uh, to save to save set point. Uh, and, and, and turn that first set around, uh, basically stealing it after Zverev seemed to be in command. Uh, obviously, I, I bring that up not just because it was a huge point, but also because, Andrew, you, you definitely know this as a, as a Fedologist, a Roger Federer scholar. That point or the, the shape of that point, at least how it evolved, uh, bears resemblance to uh, the 2011 Roland Garros final. And we've seen this so many times where Nadal will get his, his, his uh, forehand on a, on a ball from a defensive position. He'll flick that forehand cross court uh, to the ad side. He'll get it just over the net. You know, it's well inside the service box. And so you get a player who's dealing with a very, very short ball. And so the obvious uh, you know, the, the, the usual way that players approach that short ball from Rafa is they just try to hit the ball in a linear direction. They just try to, to guess, you know, whether to go add or deuce. And of course, you know, memorably Federer, uh, you know, one of the shots that he missed in, in late in the first set of that 2011 Roland Garros final it wasn't just a, an attempt to hit a linear shot. It was that drop shot, which just missed. And had he made that, uh, you know, maybe the first set ends differently. And maybe the course of that match 
goes very differently. But all, with all of that having been said, Andrew, you know, it's it's it seemed as though most players get into this mindset of, you know, I need to guess right penalty kick style. You know, I need to hit the ball in the corner where, you know, Nadal or Djokovic, for that matter, aren't going to be. And I see very few players in that situation when Nadal hits the ball just over the net. Um, I see very few players go for a touch drop volley, you know, just trying to hit the ball very lightly and delicately just over the net, especially cross court. Um, you know, and just in terms of tennis tactics and what's available to players and also what's realistic within the heat of the moment, you know, how, how, how should, should that particular shot be approached by players as a matter of tactics? Well, I was talking about it later in the match uh, during the uh, second set, and I said, it isn't that Zverev is predictable, he's readable. And it, it's, it's a matter of footwork and balance, and, but also offensive intent. That one of Federer's great skills was to set up so he could go either way and basically hold off playing the shot until he saw what his opponent was doing. And, you know, like a penalty taker, Federer could go either side, but he could also go down the middle. And, and often when he earned a short ball, Federer would play the ball hard down the center of the court, relying on his opponent breaking one way or the other and he didn't really care it was if you're actually going to break like a goalkeeper diving for a penalty kick i'll hit the ball down the middle and there's actually a penalty kick called a panenka which is where a player will will very softly hit the ball so if the goalkeeper doesn't dive the goalkeeper is just going to catch the ball and say thanks very much but because 95 percent of the time keepers dive one way or the other hoping to get a signal from the penalty taker about which way they're going to go, the Panenka sometimes comes off and it's a, you know, it's a troll move as we say these days. But Zverev, his, his footwork around the net is still a work in progress. He hit a, a, an outstanding wide slice serve to Deuce on that match point. No, I beg your pardon, set point. And Nadal played a great one-handed backhand get, dropped the ball short. So Zverev's coming in and Zverev comes in pretty fast. And as we know, drives the ball hard to, uh, to the ad corner. Nadal has already taken off in that direction. So tracks the ball down, hooks a forehand, a, back, uh, a left-handed, forehand cross-court pass that actually reminded me of uh, a shot that Nadal hit in the second set of his Australian Open semi-final against Federer in 2012, where he almost cut Federer in two because Federer was sort of cheating on the, the down-the-line pass. Nadal hit it cross-court and, and Federer sort of almost twisted like a pretzel in midair. Federer didn't do any of that. He just watched the ball went straight past him. But this predictability that, that Zverev has, it's, it's kind of, a, you know, it's basically a lack of finesse. I don't think Zverev's game is built on finesse at all. And, you know, a, a Djokovic or a Federer 
or a Murray, you know, someone with, with more finesse in their game is going to use their footwork to come up to the ball. And, you know, if Nadal stays at home, they put it into the open court. Um, if Nadal is breaking hard to the due side, they'll just flip the ball. Um, I beg your pardon, to the ad side, they'll flip the ball into the deuce corner that he's vacated. And the, the prior point, the 6-3 the point, which was the first of Zverev's two service points, he'd come in and, and biffed a backhand volley. The, Zverev can get stone hands in, in these moments. And stone hands, stone brain, whatever you want to call it, his play on that 6-4 that point, you would expect a top five player uh, to win that point 90% of the time. Now, you, you take it that he's playing Rafael Nadal, you maybe lower the odds a little bit. But part of the arsenal that you have in that situation with a soft, short ball is, where's my opponent going to go? I'm going to hit it where he isn't. And Zverev, unfortunately for, for, his, for his hopes, you know, hit the ball to where Nadal was going and Nadal made the shot. Just on a broader level, Andrew, do you think that uh, the way uh, tennis players, both ATP and WTA, are coached, just, you know, watching, you know, hundreds of matches over the years, you know, in, 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 in this modern era, you know, is, do you think that this is a coaching thing, not having, you know, these extra dimensions of awareness or, you know, as you mentioned, Federer's ability to wait out opponents, you know, keep his his head and his body quiet so that he doesn't offer a tell. Do you think this is a coaching problem? Do you think this is just players not having quite the same uh, imagination or sense of uh, possibility and scope in terms of how they approach, you know, improvisational points in the moment when drawn well within the service box? Uh, is it just a, a natural product of the, the style of the game and where it is because it's so baseline oriented how would you grapple with that particular set of questions i personally think it's it's that last point the baseline orientation of the game that you know players who get a ball that is 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 bouncing high above the net you know they can put it away the 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 nadal shot was going to be played at at net height or below uh, and I think Zverev came steaming in trying to make sure that he could could execute a play on it. But his 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 natural inclination, and the same is true, by the way, for Kasparud. I lost count of the number of points today that Nadal returned with a kind of a medium ball that would allow Rude to step into the court and, and take charge of the point. But Rude tended to take balls at medium length and, you know, turn them into ground stroke rallies, which, which didn't serve his cause well at all. And, and my sense of the game is that the, the number of players who are really comfortable playing an all-court game has, has been dropping for some time. It had been going up on the women's side with players like uh, Bianca Andrescu and uh, Ash Barty. And unfortunately, you know, we lost a really good one with Ash Barty, but that, that, that sense of, you know, once the, once the ball is, is landing around the service line 
or or shorter yeah i the it it really is a, a very high percentage chance that i'm going to win this that isn't isn't as present now because of the baseline nature of the game in the the 2000s 2010s and 2020s all right let's let's shift the focus back to rava because there's more to be said about this you know we we saw him come from two sets down in the australian open final to beat danil medvedev on medvedev's you know preferred surface hard courts and you know so he's won each of the first two majors of the year uh you know both monumental achievements given that you know that they were uphill battles and you know it's interesting there's a commonality in that nadal struggled with a canadian uh before he was able to you know beat the heavyweight uh djokovic uh in paris medvedev on hard courts in melbourne um you know how how, how do we put this in perspective because as we as we began 2022, I'd say most people thought it was going to be another year of Djokovic. I mean, he, he came so close to the Grand Slam. And, and uh, you know, if he had made some better scheduling decisions, particularly not chasing the Olympics in Tokyo, he might have been physically fresher in New York and he might have actually registered the Grand Slam. So, you know, it seemed as though 2022 was going to be another Djokovic centric year. But, but you know, and, and of course, for all the Djokovic fans who are listening, yes, the COVID politics affected the Australian Open, so we're not uh, forgetting about that. But nevertheless, still a mighty impressive achievement for Rafa to go through Medvedev in that final and then to beat Djokovic, avenge the 2021 semifinal at Roland Garros. Just, just how enormous, how uh, impressive are, are these achievements? What are some of the thoughts and and uh, just natural instinctive reactions that come to mind. I don't know. Uh, I think you you you, you kind of say, well, look, how long have you got? Um, the, uh, I mean, Nadal turned thirty six during the tournament. He very often has uh, a birthday celebrated at Roland Garros because he's he's usually in the semifinals or the final at the time that his his, his birthday comes around. And it's 17 years since his first uh, win at Roland Garros in 2005. Um, I don't know if that is the longest time between two Grand Slam wins at the same event. I am sure that that someone will be telling us that. Uh, I do remember I think it was back in 2007 when uh, Roger Federer, no, it was 2008 when Roger Federer took on Jose Higueras as his coach and Federer was aged uh, 26 at the time, 26 going on 27, that Higueras said that Federer had about a three-year window left when he could win uh, Roland Garros. So that would have taken him to, you know, maybe his early 30s or so. And Nadal at 36 is wrestling with what is potentially a career ending uh, chronic injury in his foot. 
and when I say career ending, what I mean by that is he's, he himself has spoken very eloquently of the fact that you know, he, it, it's not just while playing matches, it's, it, it's day to day. He lives with discomfort uh, from, from that foot injury. And there's a question mark hanging over Wimbledon because of it. Uh, I, I think that Nadal is talking now about potentially taking on surgery uh, and, and we don't know how long it'll take him to come back from that if he does decide to go for surgery. And obviously, you know, he's not getting any younger. There's recovery. There's, there's learning how to, to manage what he has. So, it, you know, there's all kinds of, of clouds, not just Parisian rain clouds, hanging over this tournament. Nadal had this kind of freak uh, rib uh, stress fracture that he had to get past to even get into the clay court season. He entered Roland Garros having won no tournaments, having limped off after uh, a match in Rome, obviously in, in distress from the, the continuing issue with his foot. So you know, to, to, to play, to get as far as, as Novak, that wasn't bad. Uh, to beat Novak, uh, and, you know, we talked about the match. Uh, we talked about, you know, the level of quality that these two players are still able to produce, both of them now in their mid-30s. That wasn't bad either. Uh, the Zverev match we talked about, and then the Rude match today, you're absolutely right. You know, it was men against boys or varsity against junior, junior varsity today. Um, so you took, you have a player who, who, who's dealing with all of that, taking on a 23 year old who's got one of the best records on clay court tennis uh, in the last year and a half or so, and basically making him look like a scrub. So you know, that's, that's my attempt in three or four minutes to start the conversation about how long have you gotten uh, to, to say how, how great this achievement was by, by Nadal coming into this tournament. And then I, I, I'm sure five or six years from now, it'll be kind of like, oh, yeah, it's one of Nadal's 17 Roland Garros's. But he, uh, you know, the 14th, this is going to feel special, I think. Yeah, so let's just kind of explore that a little bit more. Uh, I still think that the 2009 Australian Open uh, with, you know, the nine hours and 37 minutes uh, in the semis and the final, five hours and 14 minutes against Verdasco, four hours, 23 minutes against, you know, an in-form Roger Federer in the final, Federer at the peak of his powers, and Nadal wins both of those matches to win his first hard court major. That that's still pretty hard to beat from where I sit in terms of like the most impressive thing that Nadal has ever done. But obviously, you know, this longevity, uh, quality longevity uh, in his mid thirties, just having turned 36, I, you know, and I will be the first to admit that I questioned you know, why is he grinding his body down with this uh, playing style? Why is, you know, he taking such punishment on hard courts? You know, why isn't he shortening points more? And, and, and to be 
to be fair, he has tried to shorten points a lot more under Carlos Moya in recent years. I think Moya has been a fantastic coach for him, but nevertheless, like when Nadal was in his mid to late twenties, I was certainly questioning the longevity aspect of his career. And he's plainly refuted me on that. Like Nadal won. I lost, I lost the argument. Uh, and so Nadal has certainly made an argument there, but just, you know, there are so many with, with each of the big three, as you know, as we can all appreciate everyone listening to this show, you know, so many different, very rich, very resonant, very special moments to choose from. This is not supposed to be like a scholarly debate, Andrew, but just, you know, what's your, when you think of the best things Nadal has ever done uh, in tennis, just what, where do you naturally gravitate to? Do you feel that, you know, these two championships in 2022, does that immediately rise to the forefront for you? Or is it the 2009 Australian Open or was it? 2010, when I think Nadal played his absolute best, like that was the ultimate untouchable version of Nadal at the 2010 U.S. Open when he was serving huge on top of all of his defensive skills. Also 2013, when he won the Canada-Cincinnati U.S. Open triple. That was pretty special as well. So a lot to choose from, but just where does your mind naturally go? That's really the question that I'm asking. It's not so much a scholarly discussion just to want to get kind of like just your innate sense, your natural gravitational uh, pull, you know, when you think of the best things Nadal's ever done. So for me, the, the, the year that Nadal had between the clay court season of 2008 to the end of the clay court season of 2009, that for me is always going to be peak Rafa. Um, I think he was at his most confident. He, he basically tracked Federer down. Uh, he won Wimbledon for the first time. He became the world number one. Uh, he won Olympic gold. And going into 2009, he, he was a dominant number one. And I, 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 and I don't think he's ever played consistently at, at a higher level. The, the 2010, you know, we, we, we could possibly spend some time going back over archival YouTube footage and, and watching some of those matches. Um, but I, you know, I would hold 2008, 2009 for me, it's peak Rafa. And we've had, you know, Novak had a magnificent 2021. He was one match away from a calendar year Grand Slam. I don't think the 2021 version of Novak Djokovic is quite as good as the 2015-2016 version of, of Novak when he, he put together a, a Novak slam. He, he held all four Grand Slam titles uh, concurrently. His, his 2015 season, one of my buddies, uh, Juan Jose Valleja, who uh, was 
you know, a buddy of ours in the Pete Bodo tennis world days. Uh, he's convincingly shown that Djokovic's 2015 calendar year season it, it ought to be counted better than Federer's calendar year 2006, where, where Federer also won uh, three Grand Slams and, and lost to Nadal in his first Roland Garros final. So you go to, to Federer in 2017, where he beat Nadal coming back, the two of them coming back and, and also won Wimbledon. And people were saying, he's playing better than ever. I didn't think so. I was around in 2005, 2006, 2007. I would pick that version of Federer over uh, someone who had 10 years more experience, but also 10 years more wear and tear. And Nadal isn't as fast as he used to be. Uh, he's, you know, physically, he's, he's held together by, by string and bailing wire. But it just the, the, the competitive nature that he has, the fact that he, he, he just um, brings it for every match. I'm, I'm never 100% convinced that it's on every ball in every match. But you know, Daniel Medvedev could, could tell you a story about you know, being a few games away from an Australian Open title and being hit by a two by four there. And there's several players at Roland Garros this year who will chime up and, and join a barbershop quartet about it. Just that you, you, you can't teach a competitive nature and it always comes out when Nadal is, is playing, particularly at Roland Garros. All right. I'm going to ask you about the big picture of the ATP tour heading out of Paris and Roland Garros in a bit. But before that, one other player we need to focus on uh, and, you know, not Djokovic, because, you know, we did a live show on on him uh, after the quarterfinal against Rafa. So we touched on Zverev, um, Marin Cilic, you know, always enigmatic, always zigging when you expect him to zag. Um, you know, no one expected him to make the semifinals, but he got there. And then when he got to the semifinals, I'd, I'd say most people probably th thought that he would be able to handle Casper Ruud. Um, but, you know, he was not able to play consistent offensive tennis that Ruud was able to get a lot of balls back and Chilich made a lot of errors. So, you know, he does he does get the accomplishment of the box set having made major semifinals at all. Hang on a second, Matt. I think, I think that we dropped a connection there. So I, I lost you for about 15 seconds or so. I'm not sure if, uh, if Saki okay. lost you as well, but, but I got something that came in saying this meeting's being recorded. So you may want to go back to, to set up that last question again. Sure. Sure. So Saki can edit this, but, um, yeah, so Marin Cilic, you know, enig very enigmatic. He zigs when you expect him to zag. He zags when you expect him to zig. Uh, no one expected him to make the semifinals at this tournament, but then, of course, he turned it on, hammered Medvedev, uh, did very well to close out Rublev uh, in a final set tiebreaker. And then, of course, when he got to the semis, most people, I think, probably expected him to beat Kasper Ruud. 
but you know, he wasn't firing on all cylinders the way he did against Medvedev. Um, so he gets the box set of all four major semifinals. He's made the semis now at, at each of the four major tournaments. He had a chance to make the final at all four major tournaments. So how do, how, just how do we wrestle with the continuing enigma of Marin Cilic, who, you know, exceeded expectations at this tournament on a larger level, but I'd say de- definitely can't be all that happy about his performance against Rude in the semifinals. How do you balance those two competing tensions for Marin Cilic at this Roland Garros tournament? Um, I, I don't know. I think all I can say is, it it was a good tournament played by someone who's shown that he can be competitive and most famously in 2014 in New York played nine sets of, of lights out tennis to knock off Berdik, Federer and Nishikori and lift the trophy in New York. So Chilich is one of those players who, who can go into God mode. I think that, that somebody on Twitter was saying it's, you know, it's 80% of the time with Chilich, it's, yeah, okay, that's what I expected. Um, you know, maybe 18% of the time it's, oh, yeah, I could have done better, Marin. And then maybe 2% of the time it's, oh, my God, you can play tennis better than anybody's ever played the game. Not sure I'd go quite that far, but... Um, I, I wasn't staggered to see Chilich making it through the semifinals in the same way that I, I wouldn't have been staggered by a number of, of veteran players uh, making it through. I, I, I think when Marin Chilich eventually lays down his racket, uh, he'll be seen as you know, one of the, the top competitors of the last 15 years or so. I do have to say, and, and I want to raise one more point about youth at this tournament once we've gotten off Marin Cilic, um, how remarkable it is that you've got someone not named Djokovic, Nadal, or Andy Murray, although Murray now is, is obviously physically compromised, but someone from what I call Generation Rafa making it through to the semifinals of a major tournament in 2022. It would be like Fernando Gonzalez making it through the 2017 semifinals in in Roland Garros. Um, Just remarkable the longevity of, of the Rafa generation and, you know, perhaps reflects a little bit on the generations that followed. But we're not going to go all the way down that rabbit hole. All right. So now the ATP after Roland Garros, with everything that we've seen, you know, with Tsitsipas falling short, with Runa rising and elevating his star uh, on tour, Alcaraz, you know, getting that education from Zverev and big stage pressure in the quarterfinals. Um, you know, Medvedev not being able to make a deep run, even though the, his half of the draw was, was really opening up for him. Um, and of course, Nadal beating Djokovic, but now very, you know, I would say highly unlikely to play Wimbledon just because of the wear and tear and, and all the achievements that he's registered already. I, I do think that 
it's just a prediction. I'm, I'm not like saying like I have inside sources, but I do think Rafa won't play Wimbledon. Uh, just, just with all of these and other plot points of note, just what's your big picture view of the ATP tour uh, as we head from red clay to grass? To me, it feels like a pretty stable tour. We had six of the top eight seeds make it through to the quarterfinals. The, the top half, which everyone said was, was absolutely loaded, went with seeding. Uh, and Zverev, I think many people would have had Alcaraz as, as a slight favorite to win that one. But Zverev was the higher seed. And I think, you know, played with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder uh, and uh, knows how to play on clay. So was able to win Nadal, uh, the Widowmaker trade, bet against Rafael Nadal at Roland Garros. So so they made it through. Uh, Rude has played uh, big time clay court tennis. So was a potential likely survivor of the... Uh, the bottom half of the draw, perhaps going into the tournament, you might have picked Sitsipas to to be higher, and you know he he came up against a, a promising youngster. But overall, the the ATP is is in transition right now. You're seeing a lot more of the the younger players, the people who I call Generation Felix, Ogier Aliassime, Alcaraz, Kekmanovic. Uh, Dimenor, uh, Runa now making a name for himself. These, these are the players who I think are going to be competing for the big titles uh, a couple of years from now. Uh, possibly Novak Djokovic plays as long um, as, as Federer did being competitive into his late 30s. I'm not 100% sure that, that Nadal will, but it, it's possible that if he finds some way to, uh, to extend the playing ability on the foot that he has, that you know, he'll be winning Roland Garros for another two to three years or so. But my expectation is that we're in a transition now towards Generation Felix, and the, 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 the folks like Medvedev, Tsitsipas and Zverev, who've been the, the, the top players out of the, the, the prior generation that I call Generation Nick, they're going to they're have their hands full a couple of years from now. Uh, you know, just piggybacking off that last point, you know, how... How quickly do you see the gen- generation Felix uh, rising to meet the challenge? And I, and, you know, obviously hanging all over this is, you know, a lot of Nadal fans are seriously wondering if Rafa is even going to be around on tour uh, next year. You know, that maybe at, at before this year's out or by the, or, you know, before next year begins that he might call it a career. You know, he's made some comments that didn't necessarily say I'm going to retire, but, you know, a little bit of a past tense reference to, to his career. Um, you know, nothing that like guarantees or like, you know, obviously, re- you know, reveals something, but just that, you know, Nadal at least is thinking about things in a different way. Let's put it that way. I think that's a reasonable 
conclusion, but you know exactly what it means. Yeah, we don't want to be too definite and get ahead of ourselves, but there is a certain reflective quality uh, in terms of how Nadal is talking about these things. So, you know, that that's kind of lurking in the background, but just on a broader level, you know, do you think that uh, Generation Felix, and you know, we saw Felix himself, Felix Jose Aliasim, you know, take Nadal five uh, in, in the fourth round of this tournament. And, you know, we already seen what Alcaraz can do. Uh, Yannick Sinner, if he can just get healthy like that, that just keeps getting in his way. But like if he is healthy, you know, he can really give the ball a lash. And we saw Rublev, uh, you know, get to uh, the quarterfinals here. So, you know, how quickly do you think Generation Felix can evolve so that, you know, we get to the point where they're going to be in the major semis uh, and major finals. And, you know, let's say, you know, Djokovic does play un- into his late 30s. So that would mean he has another five years left or so. Uh, you know, do you have just a sense of when the, the balance of power at the very top tier might tilt toward uh, Generation Felix? Well, I think you're seeing it transition now that it's the, 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 what I look at is not just who's playing in the semifinals and the finals, but who's playing in the quarterfinals and the rounds of 16. And you're seeing now a very often Generation Felix is second in terms of the, the number of players they, they have making it through at, at, at that level. And what, what you typically get is you know, one or two elite players, you know, being the the first through the through the doors, but then there's a flood of them that, that follow. So I, I do think that not necessarily in 2023, if 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 they're winning big tournaments, it'll be someone that we we know of uh, already. Uh, you know, the the fellow who first comes to mind is is Alcaraz. Um, then possibly Oji Aliasim himself. Uh, but I think by the time you get to 2024, they'll be the dominant force uh, on the tour. All right. Let's transition to the WTA. And Iga Sviantek, uh did indeed win this tournament. It, it, for many people, it was Sviantek versus the field. There was a little bit of a conversation about whether Ans Jabur, you know, before the tournament began, deserved to be not not on the same par as Sviantec, but maybe being the 1B to Sviantec's 1A, and it was Sviantec or Jabur uh, against the rest of the field. But, you know, Jabur quickly answered that question by losing in the first round. And so pretty much once Jabur lost, it was Sviantec versus the field. That was the dominant question, and Sviantec was able to beat all comers, uh, finishing with Coco Goff uh, in the final and, you know, won it pretty solidly. You know, she, she had some wobbles midway through the tournament against Kovinich and especially against Zhang uh, in, the, in the fourth round. Uh, but once she got past that scare in a, in a three-setter, she was able to mentally reset and she seemed to relax more as she got closer to the finish line. It was in that middle third of the tournament when she really seemed to be feeling the weight of it. So with Sviantec having handled this uh, this first taste of pressure as the unquestioned favorite to win a major. Like, that's one of the impressive aspects of her achievement, that everyone was gunning for her, and she answered all the challenges and won. 
So how, how does that make you reshape first your view of Spion Tech in particular, but second, your view of the power structure uh, on the WTA tour? Yeah, so Shriantek, first off, uh, congratulations to her. You're absolutely right in our pre-Roland Garros uh, conversation. I think that we both thought it was Shriantek versus the field. You, you put me on the spot and said, okay, which one are you picking? And I said the field. So uh, well done, Iga. Uh, you, you made it happen and, and I shouldn't have doubted you. Uh, you're absolutely right and you're summing up, I think, against Zheng in particular. The, the one person who probably could have beaten Sviantek at this tournament was a, a young Polish woman called Iga Sviantek. That if, if she mentally um, lost her bearings, if she, if she began to doubt herself or get down on herself, as she did during the first set against Zheng, where she had five set points, multiple opportunities to close it out. Zheng, I think, was, was handling it extremely well and, and, and really forcing Shriantek to come up with, with some answers and came out the winner of that first set, but then had a, a thigh twinge, we later learned afterwards, was, was dealing with cramping issues. The the rest of the, the players that, that she faced didn't give Shriantek the opportunity to, to beat herself. And I think Jessica Pagula is going to go with her coach uh, after this tournament and, and have her coach hit kick serve after kick serve after kick serve to her. And Pagula's goal is going to be, I have to get 90% of these back into play in sufficient depth that I'm competitive because Pagula, uh, you know, every time Shriantek missed the first serve, Iga was probably thinking good because Pagula just couldn't handle Shriantek's kick serve. Uh, and she had opportunities as late as the, the, the second set where she'd have a 15-30 ball, she'd get a, you know, a kick second serve and, and hit the ball long. Uh, so after that, Sviantek pretty much, she coasted against Kazakhina. She pretty much coasted against Goff. Um, Goff, two to three years from now, uh, is going to be an amazing handful. Her, her decision-making has improved a lot. Her, her game plan has, has improved a lot. Uh, she she had a bit of difficulty against Friantek because she needed more time to to hit her strokes, particularly the forehand side. And there was a pretty good analysis by Matt Willis of you know Goff just really having no place to go. But I think a couple of years from now, it's potentially a different story. Uh, another player who impressed me a lot in this tournament was Leila Fernandez, the Canadian who made the, uh, the final of the US Open last year in, you know, youth will be served final against Emma Radankanu. Now as a Brit, I was cheering for Emma and she won that match. But since then, I think Fernandez's results have been consistently better than Radankanu's and so if you if you're if you're looking long term at the at the moment, if you had a little bit more money invested in Fernandez, 
as a consistent top 10 player versus Raducanu. I, I, I wouldn't argue too much with that on the evidence of the last year, but both players are early in their careers. The, the overall WTA, I, I commented that the, the ATP was something of a picture of stability and the WTA is still not yet a picture of stability. You have players like Andrescu, uh, Osaka. One of the things I did a, you know, a quick look around for is, you know, what happened to Sophia Kennan, who's dealt with injuries, she's pulled out of Nottingham, but you've had players who've made deep runs. You have Yelena Ostapenko. So players who, 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 who make these deep runs and then suddenly you're saying, whatever happened to Naomi Osaka, of course, is a four-time uh, Grand Slam champion, and you'd expect her to be competitive in the future. But when? We don't know. So at the moment, we have a dominant number one. I don't know how well her game is going to adapt to grass, but once she gets onto hard courts, I think she's going to take a lot of knocking off so long as you know, she, she's not out there beating herself. And again, we're maybe a couple of years away from having three or four players who are um, regularly making it through to the, the semifinals. This year, Sriantec uh, has made the semifinals of the first two uh, Grand Slam tournaments and the, the other players have been one-offs. And that continues the pattern for the WTA for some time. You know, you mentioned uh, Fernandez and Raducanu and, you know, having played in the U.S. Open. And, you know, it, we don't need to wonder about this too much, that Raducanu is going to get a lot of press in, in the from uh, global tennis outlets because, you know, the, 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 the British press are obviously – you know, with Andy Murray, uh, you know, on the downside of his career, well, Radu Khan steps in to fill that vacuum very neatly. Um, Layla Fernandez doesn't get nearly the same amount of global press, but like she was against Radu Kanu in that U.S. Open final. And with this result in Paris, I mean, one can make the argument that, you know, she has done a better job of, you know, continuing what she did. Uh, last September and carrying it into 2022. Now, neither player has been, you know, uh, dominant to say the least. Like that's been Barty at, in Australia in January and then Sviantec, uh since then. But uh, Fernandez, one could make the case, is showing more staying power than Raducanu. It's, it's early in their careers, as you alluded to. But I think a lot of fans, a lot of listeners would be interested in a, in a sense of, you know, do you think this Roland Garros tournament changes uh, the feel for how these two careers uh, are going to evolve since, you know, they're, that these careers are always going to be linked uh, to, together by that U.S. Yeah. Open match? Do you think that this Roland Garros tournament says anything about uh, the trajectory uh, changing for them? Or is it just a case of, hey, you know, let's just... Uh, Let's just sit back and evaluate these players and, and enjoy what they bring. And, and maybe like in a couple of years, we will be in a real position to, to say something. How do you 
balance the the right now versus the long view uh, with Radu Kanu and Leila Fernandez? Yeah, I th- I'm, I'm not sure you can point to any single tournament. Um, you you can look back over the you know the almost a year since the U.S. Open. So uh, Fernandez uh, won a 250 in in Monterey, uh, and Raducanu. I think the furthest she's gotten is a quarterfinal. I think that she's she's won two matches at a tournament, but she hasn't won more than that. I think. Um, I hope listeners will write to me and correct me if I've gotten this wrong. Uh, Fernandez had to win five. To, to win the, the title at Monterey. And, you know, she had to win uh, four to make it through to the quarterfinals at Roland Garros and, you know, was feeling a bit of a twinge against Trevisan, no asterisks, as we say, but you know, she was having a pretty good tournament. So I think that what you can certainly say is Fernandez has has backed up what she did at the US Open and both of them are you know right at the start of their their professional careers Raducanu there's this whole thing about coaching where she's she's chopped and changed multiple coaches which could be as as you too would say she still hasn't found what she's looking for or it could be that you know, there's something else going on in, in how she's transitioning to being a, a recognized figure on the tour. And one player that, that I still think quite a lot about is a player who, who made a Wimbledon final several years ago after making the semi-finals of the two previous tournaments who's Jeannie Bouchard who who may come back in as a uh, a wild card at, at Wimbledon a fellow Canadian to Fernandez so Bouchard looked like she was potentially going to be the next big thing on the the women's tour and and as we know she she never regained those heights uh she had uh, you know something of a, a an emotional crisis at uh her home tournament in Canada that summer and, and somehow the the tennis gods moved on from Jeannie Bouchard with both Raducanu and Fernandez you hope that they they build towards the future there are a lot of very very good young players uh, Anisimova uh, uh, had a three-setter against uh, Fernandez and she, she's clearly a, a prospect for the future. So where the WTA is now in a couple of years' time, you you hope and you trust that Triantec will be uh, a feature. There are a number of, of, of very strong players. We've mentioned Ange Jabeur. Uh, Maria Sakari is another player who you know was seeded to go to the quarterfinals, but but didn't get through the first couple of rounds or so the 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 wta game is is still in so much flux so with that in mind uh you know 
it seems like a fool's errand to, to really step out boldly and say, aha, I know the player on the WTA tour who's going to step up and become the rival to Iga Sviantek. Like, it's just too much. It's just so uncertain at this point. Now, one could say that in like three or four years, and you did make this point that Coco Goff's going to be a handful. Uh, I very much agree with that, that once she get, just gets taller gets stronger you know she's going to have a beefed up serve like i see uh, a comparison with uh seb sebastian corda that you know he, he, so much of his game and the just the structure the natural tools are there you just get that physical development it's going to naturally augment uh what's happened with the serve this this point was made by jim courier about casper root that just as he's gotten older he's gotten stronger the serves gotten several more miles per hour. So, you know, anyway, Coco Goff is in position just to make a natural evolution just for the fact that she's going to get physically stronger. Uh, but that's not now. That's that's going to be in a few years' time. So, you know, in like 2025, 2026, Goff-Sviantek could be the blockbuster rivalry that we keep searching for on the WTA Tour. It seems really hard in the near term, but like if you had – an inkling or, or an inclination or any kind of leaning, maybe not, maybe we're not going to find the answer, but like, what are the places we should look for? Maybe at Wimbledon on grass, like, should we look for uh, a specific player or set of players in terms of Andrew, you know, aha, like this is, this is going to be a proving ground moment. And these are the players that I'm going to keep an eye on in terms of, you know, how they do at SW19 and how they do in New York, that could kind of set the stage for 2023 in terms of who rises up to meet the challenge posed by Iga Sviantek. Boy, I, I, I think that's such a hard question. Uh, it as is. You've been saying, it is. As, you, as you've been saying this, I've been scrolling down uh, the, the WTA top 40 on my laptop and you have a player who in 2021 seemingly put it together and came out of nowhere. And that was Barbara Krejcikova. And, you know, she's played next to no tennis for, for much of the, the first half of, of 2022. When she comes back to, to playing steadily and consistently. Is she going to be consistently a top four player or, or was she touched by the gods for a short period of time? And she becomes a, you know, do you remember who won question four or five years from now? Um, there's Arena Sabalenka who um, will not play at Wimbledon because of the, the, the Russia-Belarusia um, prohibition that, that Wimbledon has put on this year. But, you know, Sabalenka, when she hits the ball hard and the balls go in, she wins matches. Um, she almost invariably hits the ball hard, but unfortunately for her cause, sometimes the balls don't go in. And if, if Sabalenka, I remember when um, Dmitry Tursunov began coaching her and, and it was as if 
mentally she really put it together and and just shot up through the ranks uh, with a rocket but you know if you were thinking ahead to the the US Open and you were saying okay maybe this is the tournament that, that Sabalenka puts it all together again and, and it stays put together maybe it would be but gosh you know that that would be a a hard bet so then you're 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 starting to to you know run back down through the players um it kind of feels to me like belinda bencic is is a known quantity is she going to make a a big step up from you know her her general level of play i don't know uh if Belinda Bencic is around at the business end of the tournament, I'm not surprised. If Bencic suddenly turns into a uh, a week-in, week-out tournament player, I think I am surprised. Uh, and then you're down, you know, towards uh, Rybakina, uh, Anisimova, uh, Samsonova, you know, you're, you're you're basically starting now to get down into the twenties, where it's okay. They they have good weeks. They sometimes play against a top seed and beat them all up very good. But you know, apart from people that we've mentioned already, like Naomi Osaka, uh, Bianca Andreescu, the injured Sofia Kenin, you're sort of saying, are are any of these players? really ready for the next step up so possibly the most likely thing not in 2022 but 23 24 is the the one of those established players i'm not sure if it's possible to say that andriescu is really established um just given how much time she spent off court because of injury but a naomi osaka who's who, who who's in a much better place um you know, emotionally and in terms of, you know, Zen, maybe those are the players who are, are challenging Sviantec. One Wimbledon question and, and not, you know, not getting your prediction so much as just, you know, Sviantec has met the challenge of, you know, becoming the target and being able to play well as the target, as, as the favorite. But, of course, that was on clay. And grass is an entirely new equation. Now, of course, Shriantek has an electric game. She has the she hits the biggest ball uh, on tour, or at least the biggest, most consistent ball. You know, you said about Sabalenka that, you know, she hits the ball huge, but it doesn't always stay in. Shriantek has the marriage of power and consistency. But we haven't yet seen Shriantek put all the pieces together uh, at Wimbledon on grass. And we've seen Naomi Osaka, for instance, you know, luminously skilled, obviously very gifted, great mover, which one would think would work on grass, but the consistency of the bounce doesn't exist on grass that you get on hard courts. So she hasn't been able to figure out grass. Just how do you wrestle with the, the general reality of Sviantec being a dominant world number one, but not having the Ash Barty skill set, which is such a an obviously compatible fit for grass. And how, how does that uh, affect just on a broader level, how you assess this Wimbledon and how, how, uh, 
how precarious you think it is, uh, it, it, you know, or how much Igor Spiontek, uh is, is likely to take hold of it? Wimbledon always uh, rewards players who serve accurately and who can you know, set up the point with their serve. Can Shriantek do that consistently? Yes, but she's not. She's she's less reliant on on winning free points when with a serve or a serve plus one, uh, particularly on grass. That I think that the the Barty was able to do. Um, so, if Shriantek wins Wimbledon, I mean she's on such a, a long winning streak. I don't think she's entered into any of the warm up tournaments, so she'll she'll come in fresh, but she won't have played competitively on, on grass. If Shriantek goes out in the round of 16 or the quarterfinals, I won't be astonished. Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that the, the, the final at Wimbledon, if it goes anything like according to seeding, I'll be a little bit surprised and you could have something like last year's US Open where it was something like the 73 ranked versus the 150 ranked player. All right. Uh, as we wind down the show, a, a few more general big picture topics that we want to get to. I think that, you know, things that fans will definitely want to get your opinion on Andrew. One is the scheduling now at Roland Garros. And one, one thing that's been pretty clear and we don't have to deal too much with this is that, you know, the, the night sessions need to be, two match sessions with one for each tour. They need to start a lot earlier in the day. I, I think on that point, like that seems pretty clear cut for next year, that that's one reform the French Tennis Federation uh, needs to implement in terms of its schedule. But, uh, you know, beyond that, th there was the issue of from the Zverev-Rafa uh, semifinal, and we've seen this come up before, like most memorably in the 2018 Wimbledon semifinals between Rafa and Novak Djokovic, it's this idea that if you start the match in a certain series of conditions, you have to finish the match uh, in a certain series of conditions. Like, you know, so it was sunny on the Saturday when that Rafa Djokovic 2018 semifinal was completed. But because they started under a roof, uh, it was deemed that they had to finish it under a roof. Like one would have to think, Andrew, that that particular uh, policy or if you can even call it a policy, that, like that should be able to be changed and there should be flexibility in terms of, you know, if the weather is, is fine, if the, if the rain clears up, that you should be able to remove the roof and not uh, labor under this belief that you have to always have a roof on or always have a roof off. Uh, you know, that, that seems like an easy fix for the French Open to make next year. I agree. Uh, I, I think that if you... If you start a set with the roof closed, it probably makes sense to finish the set with the roof closed. Um, but they're outdoor tennis tournaments. I, th I think if you can play in outdoor conditions, it, it makes sense to do so. I, I do note though that, that clay is the only surface on which 
you're able to play in light rain. So I know that people were commenting on the humidity uh, in the stadium during the Nadal-Zverev match, but I don't think that that had an impact or a serious impact on the condition of the clay leading to the, the nasty fall that, that Zverev took. Um, but yeah, I think if, you, you know, if, it, if it's raining cats and dogs uh, of an evening and you have to finish a match, then the next day, if you come back uh, and it's sunny, then you know, play it with the roof off. The, the other thing about scheduling, though, is, is, is starting matches very late in the night where you can have players on court at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., which, which really messes them up for, for the next couple of days or so. So that also is something that the tournaments have to take a look at. If you, I think if you're starting an evening session much before, uh, sorry, much after seven o'clock, things are going wrong. So, you know, does this mean that, you know, we should be starting day sessions at like 1030 in the morning? Um, you know, you know the, the, the Roland Garros normally starts uh, at 11 for the first four rounds. And then it started at, uh, I believe, 3 p.m. Uh, for the uh, quarterfinal sessions. Or no, actually, it started at noon uh, for, for the quarterfinal sessions. Uh, earlier in the week, but it played all four matches on Chatrier. No, ma- you know, no quarterfinals on Longland. That's you know, with with the uh, lights now being on Chatrier, that's the the adjustment. So, do you, I guess one question would be, Andrew, do you think that uh, uh, Roland Garros should go to a you know, have, let's put three match quarterfinals on Chatrier and one on Longland, so that you don't have the late quarterfinal uh going late or or is it just a matter of you know what let's if we're if you know to avoid the spectacle of seeing Nadal and Djokovic finish their match after 1 a.m on Wednesday you know it started around uh 9 p.m Tuesday uh do you think we just the, 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 that Roland Garros just has to bite the bullet and start its uh long quarterfinal slate of four matches at 10 30 a.m well the the Djokovic Nadal match was a four setter, and obviously, the you know, partly because of the quality of the players, but also the way that the match turned out. You know, they finished the fourth set in the early morning hours after 1 a.m. Had they gone to a fifth set, you know, who knows when they would, when they would have finished. Um, during the, I mean, this Verev. Nadal's semi-final was over three hours when they were nearing the end of the second set. And I remember tweeting out that Marin Cilic is, is checking on the babysitter's rates and when she's going to charge double rates uh, for, the, for her evening. So who knows if Nadal Zverev had gone five sets when Rudin Cilic would have eventually gotten off court. Uh, is it, it's really hard, I think, to look at um, tennis overall and say, 
we think that there's a really strong market for matches that are decisive in a tournament that are being played after 1am in the morning. And I just can't see that how that makes sense. Is there anything else just from Andrew Burton's notebook uh, that we haven't mentioned that you want to be sure to mention, whether it be a player, uh, a, a, a scheduling topic, an issue of tennis governance, uh, uh, you know, the, anything about the two tours, anything else at all as we conclude this Roland Garros wrap-up show? So I think that one thing, and it ties in a little bit to the night sessions that we, we've kicked around, is that this was Amelie Maresmo's first Roland Garros' tournament director. And I know that she came in for comment uh, unfavorable comment about the way that she responded to the question about the night sessions that they'd only had one women's match on and she talked about you know having sold the television rights and you know needed to make sure that they had high quality matches and I think the players on the WTA side you know particularly Jessica Pagula uh, you know, noted that and said you know that's that's not really a good look um, so there, there, there were, you know, maybe a couple of verbal stumbles, but I noted that, that, that Kasper Rude in his, um, runners up speech today went out of his way to praise Maresmo as tournament director to say that, you know, she'd been there. She was a player. She was a, a championship winner. She knew what, what players needed and, so she, uh, you know, she got a vote of confidence from from one of the finalists, and and I hope that the the kerfuffle about the night sessions they clearly had transport issues in terms of planning to get people home from the the tournament site uh, at the end of the night session. So there's there's, there's some learning to be done there, but uh, you know I I think Amelie Maresmo had uh, a better um, tournament overall than the Australian Open tournament director. Um, so I hope that she, she's there, she learns from it and, and goes from strength to strength. I would simply uh, add that, you know, she did not make the decision to have a one match night session. That was a, a, a decision which got made at an administrative level uh, above her so like she was inheriting the scheduling architecture and she had to make decisions within that scheduling architecture which which you know it was her job to work within that so I think that is an important note uh, about Amelie Moresmo well Andrew this uh, this uh, show went pretty long but of course at the end of a major tournament we do go long because there is so much to talk about so much we want to get to so much we want to make sure gets discussed because these are like the foremost days of the year in terms of you know global tennis fans wanting to know about the state of the sport on so many levels beginning with the players such as Rafael Nadal such as Iga Sviantec the two Roland Garros champions but then fanning out into so many other different issues so Andrew Burton thank you as always for doing a tremendous job for us here at Tennis with an Accent and uh, along with the rest of us Andrew go get some rest these next few weeks 
Yep. Yeah. yeah, I think we're all going to need it. All right. Take care, Matt. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Taz with an Accent.